Welcome to the Early Link Podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Today, we're going to be talking about the Student Success Act and its implications for education in the state of Oregon. I have three guests with me in the studio today. Uh, Scott Nine is Assistant Superintendent at the Oregon Department of Education. Parasa Chanrami is the Policy and Implementation Director at Stanford Children. And Dana Hepper is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Children's Institute. Welcome, everyone. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. It's great to have you here. The Student Success Act was passed in the late spring of 2019, the last legislative session. And that act allocates $1 billion per year in funding for education. The funds are divided into three different accounts, investments that reach the full spectrum of education when we think about prenatal all the way through 12th grade. So there's a tremendous potential and opportunity in the Student Success Act. Before we get into some of the questions, I'm going to want to ask you about how that breaks down, but I wanted to get your thoughts and comments on what this opportunity really is for the state of Oregon. What does the SSA, as it's known, present? Nice to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity to talk with the listeners and folks statewide. So for me, and I think for the Department of Education, really see the Student Success Act is representing a few things. The first one's listening. So it's important to remember the legislation stems from two years of a joint committee of the legislature traveling statewide and listening to young people and to educators and families, and really looking at what's the state of public education in Oregon and where are their needs that need to be met. And so the legislation then really puts forward a whole series of what is 28 different investments. We also talk about it as a historic turning point for the state, although as I'm out and about, I like to say it's a historic turning point only if we turn. (laughs) And the turning is about uh, investing in student health and well-being and in equity. Uh, And it really asks that we do something unique as a state, which is basically the legislature has bet on educators and superintendents and teaching staff and community and basically a formula that puts community engagement, changing educational practice, and um, centering student health and racial equity uh, together in a really powerful combination. Uh, and we're, we're hoping that we can create the right conditions with those investments for that to actually manifest it in more powerful outcomes for students and families. Parsa, thoughts on that? Absolutely. I'd love to build on what Scott shared. Um, for us, it's the passage represents such a watershed moment in our state's policy and um, funding history because that billion dollars every single year, um, that's entirely new funds that's going on top of the state school fund. And um, we've also seen this as the largest supplemental education investment in our state's history. Because it's so significant, with that comes a lot of responsibility. And so what Scott had shared about making sure that we turn and really make the most of this moment, that turning point represents us starting to recover from over 30 years of divestment. And it's our opportunity to advance policies that embed educational equity to increase student success, especially for our priority student populations. And on the early learning front, I would agree. I mean, there's a focus on talking directly with families about what they see as most important um, for helping their children be ready for kindergarten and listening and being responsive to those, what parents have to say. And I think that is something that mirrors what is happening in K-12. And it's a turning point in the acknowledgement of the state that the disparities that we see in K through 12 don't start when kids hit kindergarten, but they actually start 
prenatally and at birth. And we know we can see disparities based on whether or not kids have had access to early learning programs. We can see those disparities early as nine months in a measurable way with the early language development of children. And the distinction I'd make in the early learning space is that um, this was historic. It doubles the state's investment in young children. And at the same time, we see it as a first step because, you know, in preschool, for example, we'll go from serving 35% of low-income kids to like 40% of low-income kids. So we still have a, in the early learning space, we see we still have a long way to go um, to get where we want to be in terms of serving all the kids who are eligible. Okay, great. Thank you. So the Student Success Act is broken into three different accounts. It's the student investment account, uh, the early learning account, and the statewide education initiatives account. Scott, could you talk about the, just give us an overview of the SIA. I know it accounts for about half of the funding, about $500 million per year. That's my understanding. So what does that look like? And how would you describe the potential impact on schools and districts? Sure. So you're right. It is 50% of the money that comes from this new revenue collection. It's projected to be about $500 million for this first year. It's a non-competitive grant fund. So that's unique. All of the 197 school districts in Oregon are eligible. They have to meet a set of requirements. So the legislature's laid out some specific things that districts need to do. Um, it also allows for some charter schools who meet a specific set of requirements to potentially also participate either through their district or by applying independently. And there's a lot of detail to that, but at a, at a high level. Um, the real core purpose, the SIA specifically's two primary purposes are paying attention to student mental health um, and well-being and thinking about how to close longstanding academic disparities, particularly for groups that have been historically underserved. So students of color, students with disabilities, emerging bilingual students, students navigating poverty, foster care, and homelessness. Uh, the law asks, that expects actually, in the application process that districts demonstrate how they've done focused community engagement with those student populations, their families, and a district staff, and to figure out how to take this funding. So while it's a non-competitive grant for most districts, it's about 8 to 12% increase in their budget take this targeted amount of money and determine how those funds could be utilized to meet those two core purposes. The legislature gave districts a lot of flexibility about how to spend the funds, but was very um, specific about the ways that districts would consider how to utilize those funds. So districts are required to utilize an equity lens, look at promising practices across Oregon, take in all of this input, we could talk more about the challenges of doing that well, yeah. but effectively, uh, this is the kind of core essence of the student investment account is this deep engagement, application of equity lens, and then really looking at how to create a change in impact and outcomes related to student health or related to academic achievement. Part of what you've had to do is talk with districts all over the state. We have 197 districts in Oregon. I know you've been to many of them. What have you learned and what have you heard from educators about how they want to see this investment used? That's a great question. So I have had the chance to talk with leaders in almost all of the 197 districts, and I did have a chance to make one statewide trip in the four and a half months since I, uh, I started in the, in the role. And I think that there's a few things. So one of the points uh, that we already discussed was about 30 years of underinvestment. Um, and so when you when a system is basically strained for 30 years, and then suddenly we're at a moment where you resource it, 
you create a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, and there's a lot of hope amongst lots of different communities. At the same time, all that money doesn't come in at once. It comes year after year. And so a lot of what folks are looking for are uh, how do folks get more counselors into schools? How do you solve some uh, safety and health issues at the building level? Uh, there's a real appetite for culturally responsive pedagogy and practice. There's a hope of returning back to more electives for schools that have had to cut them and a more well-rounded education. Uh, there's a huge range of things that people are hoping will happen with the funding. And that's a beautiful opportunity. And it causes a moment of community conversation from prenatal, really post-graduation. How do communities, school districts represent a community coming together? And you've actually, if you're good at the engagement, you ignite everybody's interest for what the priority should be. And then um, districts and community leaders are basically then struggling, like, what do you prioritize first? Uh, and over time, what do you prioritize in terms of increased staffing and support versus specific programs? So all that's kind of playing out right now in real time. Dana, I wanted to ask you about the early learning account. For the most part, these are uh, the account would fund programs and services for children zero to five. Um, talk about what the early learning account does for kids and existing programs in the state. Yeah, absolutely. So the legislature did something really wise, and they recognized that kindergarten readiness didn't start at preschool, which I think was a risk when a lot of us think about our kids being ready for kindergarten. They think, well, they need to go to preschool, but we know that kindergarten readiness actually starts prenatally and at birth. And so that the legislature was really thoughtful in making sure there were investments across that whole continuum of a child's early development. And that's really exciting. So starting with very young children, we're going to see more than a 1,000 kids who have access to early Head Start, an incredibly effective, successful program that works with the lowest income zero to three-year-olds in Oregon and leads them into the, the preschool Head Start program that probably a lot of folks are familiar with. So that's really exciting. And there's also investments in home visiting programs that work directly with families to support developmental activities at home and help families be stable um, and safe places for young children to grow up and relief nurseries that prevent child abuse from the earliest ages and strengthen families as well. So that's really exciting, understanding that the way young children develop is very much in the context of their families and the relationships they have with adults. And we need to think about what's happening when they go to a childcare early learning setting, but we also need to be thinking about what's happening in their home. And then they've also made one of the most uh, significant investments was for young children with disabilities and delays so that we make sure that we're intervening and supporting families and children as early as possible who have disabilities and delays. And so we put a lot of money in our early intervention and early childhood special education program. And then um, we are improving and expanding preschool for low-income children in Oregon. So the state's investment in the Head Start program, which we call Oregon Pre-Kindergarten, we're making sure more of those programs are the full length of a school day so families can work and do all the other things they need to do with their lives and children get the full benefit of being at preschool for six hours. We're making sure kids can have a bus to get to that program and we're making sure Head Start teachers get a salary increase, and we don't have um, an average teacher salary in Head Start of $29,000 a year, which is the current state. So we're hoping to change those things and make it a better place for kids. And then we're expanding our state preschool program for 2,500 additional children. So that's really exciting as well. How do you think, Scott and Dana, or, and Parasa, if you have thoughts on this, how do you think about this 
intersection between early learning and K-12. But, you know, early learning, when we talk about it, is usually birth through third grade, which obviously overlaps with what K-12's interests are. But what are those opportunities there for those two worlds to come together? Uh, the first thing is that they are together in the form of the child, right? So <laughs> yeah. le learners aren't segmented. Right. Uh, they don't respond based on departmental or the ways in which we train or prepare educators. Mm -hmm. And the science of learning and what we know about development tells us very powerfully uh, that the experience of children uh, in the womb uh, is formative. We know that the way that the brain wires itself in the first couple of years of life is really significant. What people eat, um, the environment that they're around shapes brain architecture. It doesn't It's not permanent, but it is really important. That knowledge is saturating the K-12 field, but a lot of early learning folks have deep knowledge in that that benefits K-12 teachers. There's actually huge new research around the science of development for adolescents. And we know that at adolescence is the closest time that your brain acts a lot like it did between zero and two. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a lot to be learned about that. And part of that is that we're, we're whole people, right? So everything that happens in your experience impacts how you learn. Uh, and so how do we do the best? Now, sometimes teachers who've been uh, at it for a while will say, well, that brain research is great, but just informed what I knew from my 20 years of teaching and learning. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and the structures don't always match up. So there's a huge amount of opportunity for us to think about how these policy investments can situate with what we know about what happens in human development and then the ways that we support a continuum of educator professionals uh, and think about how they situate. I think we're probably well on the way in terms of investment from the state to make those moves, but at a kind of practice level, district by district, there's a lot of work, community by community, early learning center by early learning center. There's a lot of work to be done to get that to kind of situate together so that it feels more seamless, mm -hmm. even though that's a goal we articulate. I think we have a long ways to go to kind of realize that in people's day-to-day -day lives. Dana, thoughts on that? I think that's so true that um, we are beginning more at the policy level to think about that education and learning and development as a continuum that really starts at birth or prenatally and runs all the way through higher education. And we're trying to set up those systems. But I think in the practice space, we still use very different language and approaches with young children. And I think the experience of children and families, it can be jarring to transition from the early learning world to kindergarten um, and I know I certainly experienced that as a parent, like, wow, that we're going into a building with 500 children and gosh, it's really noisy and busy those first few days. And oh my gosh, there are 25 kids in this class and only one teacher. It's a really different space to enter into. And so I think the fact that we're thinking about this at the policy level, at the legislature, at the Department of Education and the Early Learning Division is the first step to supporting preschool teachers and kindergarten teachers and first grade teachers having an opportunity to meet each other, build a relationship, talk with each other about what they see in their teaching practices, what they're trying out, how it's working with children, have more opportunities, especially in that transition phase, to share information about what worked with children in our settings. So I think their collaboration at the state level is an important step, and there's more work to do to have it translate in communities. Great. Go ahead. So I just wanted to add on to what Dan and Scott were saying. So even before going to education policy, I was a kindergarten teacher. And so having that experience firsthand and seeing 
all of the different various options or lack of options that students and families had access to made a really big difference when it came to coming into kindergarten prepared. And so for me, that made our children's experiences and our families' experiences even more real when you see it on the front lines. Um, and I think what Dana had mentioned about this opportunity to be more aligned at the state level in terms of policy investments, how do we develop our capacity, how do we see those opportunities to braid, um, and then having that trickle down to the local collaboration. Um, I know we've talked about potentially having our early learning hubs collaborate more closely with traditional district partners and community-based partners. And uh, some have already started doing that or have been doing that really well for some time. And I think um, there's an opportunity in this work to continue to connect people across the state with some of these best practice examples as well. And then for some of these K-12 to higher ed investments, and I know we still have a lot to do with um, in investing in higher ed as well, is there's a workforce development piece to it. Um, and I'll give you an example. So with Measure 98, some districts are using their Measure 98 dollars to expand early childhood education programs of studies and their apprenticeship programs. And that's been a great way to um, give high school students an opportunity to explore careers in early childhood education. That also builds our pipeline and potentially our future workforce, too. Um, so I think so much of this is inextricably linked, and it's exciting to see with this great investment, like I said earlier, becomes such a great responsibility to align our system and our policy and our work. One quick thing I would add, I think it's important to name, there are a lot of bright spots. I don't think where the, the state is invested and the state has a responsibility to try to figure out how that um, the, the fabric of things might fit together. There's really great work happening in districts and in early learning centers all across the state. They just happen to sometimes be in pockets. And one of the real things I'm focused on in my role is uh, what technically we call knowledge mobilization. So how do how do you get the best ideas and information <laughs> to get shared? Maybe, maybe right here on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for contributing to that opportunity. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. I I do want to touch on uh, Paris of the statewide education initiatives account. I know you already mentioned Measure ninety eight. That's part of that account. There's about three hundred million dollars in that account uh, as part of the SSA. Can you give us a little bit more of an overview of what's happening there? I know there are many different investments happening. Absolutely. So for the statewide initiative account, there's roughly 12 different investments, and I like to break it down into two major buckets. So one is a really equity-focused bucket. That's where I would put Measure 98, the African-American Black Student Success Plan, the American Indian Alaska Native Success Plan. There's also a new um, Latino, Latina, Latinx Success Plan that has additional dollars and there'll be an advisory group convening to focus on um, supporting students there. And then there's also a piece on diversifying the educator workforce as well. Um, Can I jump in really yeah. quickly? Um, I also wanted to call out very explicitly in the early childhood bucket, there's also an early childhood equity fund, mm -hmm. um, the early learning equity fund. And so the purpose of that is also to grow culturally specific programs, a lot of which work with families to get kids ready for kindergarten. And I think that's another, I think, see these um, African-American student success, Latinx student success, and uh, Native American, Alaska Native student success plans as um, really complementary to the Early Learning Equity Fund as well. Um, 
So wanted to make sure that was in the mix. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then um, just to build on more of those equity initiatives, we also have an investment in summer programming for Title I schools and expansion of free and reduced-priced meals, um, as well as an important focus on our out-of-school and opportunity youth. And then the second bucket um, that I kind of break down all of these accounts into is uh, about capacity building. There are two pieces as it relates to the capacity building around the student investment account, the first one being additional funding for student success teams and investments for education service districts, which act as a regional hub in coordinating district services and um, everything from early learning to professional training. And this has been really valuable for small, rural, and remote districts. And then um, under the capacity building bucket, I would also add um, school safety and the early intervention, early warning system as well. So um, that is a statewide initiatives account in a nutshell. So a lot, lot to capture there. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot to capture. You did, you did a good job. You did a good okay, job. thanks, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say a little bit more about Measure 98? And I know that the recent news is that Oregon's graduation rate has hit 80% for the state, and some have attributed uh, Measure 98 as a key factor in that change and that uptick in the graduation rate. Can you talk a little bit about investments in Measure 98, how districts are spending their money, and the um, the Center for High School Success? Absolutely. So for Measure 98, uh, for some background, it really depends on the size of the district. It's a non-competitive fund similar to the student investment account. And depending on the size of the district, uh, they can spend their dollars in uh, career technical education, dropout prevention, and um, advancing college-level opportunities. The other thing I would add is that we we intentionally wanted to build in a lot of equity-focused components into Measure 98 as well. And it's been exciting to take lessons learned and reflections on implementation and apply that to some of our state-level work that we've been doing um, at Stanford Children. And so when Measure 98 passed at the ballot, we knew that our work wasn't over yet. We still needed to make sure that the legislature funded it. And in the 2017 session, we were able to work with a broad coalition of partners to secure $170 million in funding it for the first biennium. And so building on that momentum, generally when we um, wade into the implementation space, we primarily focus on rulemaking and monitoring and partnering with the Department of Ed. But we found that because it was such a significant investment, we needed to take some more time and dedicate more staffing capacity to the technical assistance component of the work. And we're trying to get a sense of where we can make the largest impact. And uh, ninth grade success uh, really came top of mind for us because of some of the work that we had been following through the University of Chicago and their research around ninth grade on track. We uh, partnered really closely with um, their network for college success to learn more about their professional development model and how do we support educators. And uh, we're working to replicate a lot of their work out in Oregon. And so in 2017, that summer, right after that long session, we launched the Center for High School Success. And now we're in our 76 high schools and 42 school districts. And um, we are covering the majority of ninth grade students through this work. 
Our model is basically focused on providing uh, job-embedded training, coaching uh, for schools and districts, as well as uh, data supports that focus on continuous improvement. And then the last thing is around peer learning opportunities. Um, similar to what Scott was sharing earlier about connecting people around the state and <laughs> learning from each other, we're also doing something very similar through our regional model and connecting districts with one another. Um, and eventually, we would want to build in some more site visits um, that are based in Oregon. Uh, we've started doing that on a smaller scale, but I think as we expand our operations, that's another opportunity to have more folks around the state, but also outside of Oregon, come to learn more about what we're doing. And that's something that we've been really proud of uh, that we've been able to build together. Are there other lessons that you've learned in the implementation process that now that the SSA is here, there's a lot of attention to the implementation side of things. Money needs to get down to districts. It needs to get to programs. And many people, advocates, were interested in making sure that those funds get spent well and that we see results from those. So what have you learned from the implementation process? For the implementation process of Measure 98, as I mentioned earlier, we spent a lot of time on rulemaking, on guidance, and the technical assistance pieces what we've found, what matters most, it's come down to partnerships. That has been critical to sustaining the work. So not only the partnership within the school, but with external partners, community-based, culturally specific partners throughout the region. And then that partnership with the state has been very um, valuable for districts as they're developing their plans and setting their goals and tracking progress. The other piece, um, and I touched upon it just a little bit, was the meaningful job-embedded training. So educators that are receiving that are seeing the value between uh, what they're learning at an all-day training and then the coaching assistance that they're getting that complements that work. And that has been a really important point to ensure that we're working to rebuild and strengthen systems and build the capacity of educators on the ground. And then the last piece that we've really taken away from implementation is balancing both clear guidance with local autonomy that helps clarify what the expectations and goals are while allowing room for that local innovation. And that's all done in partnership with the high school success team at the Department of Ed. And districts have found that to be really valuable. And each year, when we talk about a continuous improvement, they've improved on their beta model <laughs> planning. And this past planning process in particular, the high school success team has adopted a regional model where peers in that region can also support each other in reviewing plans, being thought partners, um, and sharing across a particular region. And people are seeing like, wow, I had no idea you could do that <laughs> with your Measure 98 dollars and be really creative with creating more time for educators or restructuring the schedule, how people are expanding their programs of study, how they're setting up systems to support um, on-track efforts. And so that has been so much fun to be able to be part of and to kind of see at a macro level come together too. You've all talked about this idea of partnerships with communities, input from from parents, from families, and I know that's been part of the process with the SSA implementation so far from an early learning lens, from a K-12 lens, district lens. What have we learned 
so far from parents and families and communities about what this investment means and what they want to see for their kids and families? Hmm. To be candid, I think the learning, at least as it relates to the student investment account, is at the community and district level so far. So we're a ways away. I mean, I can speak broadly about the touch points that I have, um, both talking with districts and getting to participate in some community uh, engagement activities, but relative to the scale of them. So we, we are in a really uh, unique moment. The level of community engagement statewide uh, has been significant. I was addressing a group of superintendents uh, over the weekend, and it is like a, you can, you know, you do like a review of articles about community engagement statewide. There's an amazing amount of work being done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also uneven, right? So some, both at the skill level, I won't speak on behalf of early learning, but also range. And, you know, it's a big state. Um, and it's, you know, six months since the legislature told everybody, here's the thing you need to go and do. Right, right. Now, granted, my values are that <laughs> that's something you'd hope would be happening prior. Um, but there's definitely a lot of focus and incentive and some resources. And we have a long way to go, kind of year after year. Um, definitely, we're hearing from some communities. I've received letters from families, students with, with, um, students with disabilities who said this is the first time since the passage of IDEA that they have felt their districts listen to them. And IDEA um, for our listeners? It's the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Uh, it's a 1970 Something. or early 80s law that basically is the kind of foundational uh, law that governs uh, how we respond to students with special needs. Um, but it's a big deal to have this. This is a federal law that passed you know, many, many years ago. But the idea that districts are listening differently uh, is the, is the kind of core point. Seeing districts of all different shapes and sizes engaging in really unique ways to build trust with communities, particularly as it relates to communities of color, but also families in poverty, ways to think about how to do engagement outside of the school building, ways to figure out how to build trust with administrators and to help uh, build bridges across language. Uh, and so I think there there's a lot there. What folks want to invest in all right, uh, is everything as simple as could there be someone in the office who might be able to speak the language that I speak? Uh, or can materials be provided to really essential health and safety needs? A lot of attention as I've traveled around around anxiety and feeling like students are super stressed out and experiencing a lot of mental health needs mm-hmm. um, and a lot of worry. Um, and you know, the world's a complicated place. We're living at a complicated time and our young people reflect back to us uh, what's going on in the world. So that, I think that's got a lot of folks' attention. Certainly, people want folks to um, have access to the most relevant knowledge and learning. And there's also recognition that the kind of ways we've designed our curriculum uh, are different than the types of tools that young people need now. Um, but I think it's too early to tell. We could we can check back in uh, in a couple of months as all of the plans come in. You might be able to speak a little bit more from a high school success and measure ninety eight perspective. But I think we'll 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 know a lot more based on how uh, what districts reflect back. Um, in their consideration process. But I, I think just mindful to be humble of how big the state is and how many conversations, and I wouldn't, it would be difficult, I think, to kind of caricaturize it too quickly. Parsa Dana, you have yeah. thoughts on that? I can add on to what Scott had shared a little bit on the community engagement piece. So um, I think Scott totally hit the nail right on the head in terms of there being um, glimmers and spotlights of like high quality engagement in pockets of the state, um, but it tends to be really uneven. And I think that's a real opportunity for us to highlight 
where are there islands of success that we can learn from? And one of the things that we've been doing is meeting with a lot of culturally specific community-based partners and statewide organizations to be able to share across the education spectrum as well and learn from each other about where are we having a lot of success with community engagement and why that success is possible and where are we experiencing challenges, particularly for families that have not felt traditionally welcomed in our school and district systems. So I think with the additional investments that districts are spending in, and that they have spent in the needs assessment process and now in the planning process for the student investment account, that's a real opportunity to transform our practices in reaching out and meeting community where they're at and ensuring that we are doing it in the most accessible and equitable way. Um, I'll give you a couple examples that we found in different parts of the state. So some of the education service districts in our state are going to be working directly with community-based partners to reach out to families of color across multiple districts and think about more creative ways to communicate to families and recognizing that place is so important and accessing information and ensuring that families and students feel safe. Um, and then there's some other districts that are creating specific advisory groups that are made up of folks that work within the district, but also community-based partners and students. And that's been a great way to plan and be more intentional about how we do community engagement. It's not perfect, but we're learning. <laughs> and I think um, every time that we revisit this planning process and continue to monitor um how we do over time, I think it'll get better and better each time. I would agree on the early learning front. Early learning hubs are brand new themselves. They've only been around for about five years. And so early learning hubs are in the place of building their muscle on everything that they're supposed to do. And one of those things is community engagement. And this is the first time every early learning hub in the state was specifically asked to or required to talk directly to families and ask families what they wanted from childcare and preschool in their community. What were their priorities? What did they define as something that would meet the needs of their children um, and their families? And I think what we learn is we're going to get this a lot better when we actually ask people as opposed to sitting in our offices and assuming what people want and assuming what is best for them. We're going to get a heck of a lot closer if we've actually gone out and had the conversations. And I think to reinforce what Parasa and Scott are saying, when we ask them in their space, at their neighborhood meeting, at their community gathering space, as opposed to calling those meetings at an early learning hub office or a school district space that might not be a space that has been welcoming right. to specifically the populations of children and families who the Student Success Act is supposed to serve. Where are we right now in the implementation timeline? Uh, if we think about this, so to me, this is kind of two parts. We've got implementation underway. Scott, I'll kick it to you. And then the other question is, what are the implications for fall? What's really going to be happening in the classroom? What changes can we expect? So I'll walk through where we're at on the student investment account side, and then I'll leave it to Parasa to try to explain the 27 other initiatives. <laughs> the, uh, so uh, just play. <laughs> so, so, 
So the the student investment account, we're at a point where for most districts, again, 197 districts and and 20 some charter schools that are engaged in this process uh, and uh, to to apply, um, mostly they're at the point where we've we've put out a significant amount of information, which you can find at Oregon.gov/odn. There's a blue banner that says Student Success Act. We put a lot of guidance uh, that walks districts through what they have to do to pull all the pieces together. Uh, and that involves like looking at all this community engagement feedback, looking at the needs assessment, the district's overall continuous improvement plan, how you apply an equity lens, how you look at data, and pulling all that information together and then figuring out what you might do with it. So m- most districts are deep into that process um, and trying to balance all of that feedback. They're going to take that information and they're going to put it according to the law. They're going to put it together and they have to put it in front of their school board at an open meeting for open comment and post it on the web. And so all across the state, folks are going to be in school board meetings, talking and giving feedback. Where school boards approve those plans, they come to the state. We're definitely deep into preparation for receiving all of those applications. Mm -hmm. They'll come from March 2nd to April 15th. That's the window of time in which districts provide their information to the department. And then we're going to do something really exciting. Uh, we're, We're put out a call for folks all across the state to make some history. We've put forward trying to model that same community engagement practice at a state level. Uh, We call them quality assurance and learning panels. We're inviting folks all across the state to apply to basically serve a day and be a part of a process where they would basically review ODE staff work as we review these plans. So if you filled out that application, Raphael, you'd basically come for a day and you'd see about 10 or 12 different districts' plans in 30-minute increments. Mm -hmm. You'd be hearing from two ODE staffers sharing their assessment, and you'd have a chance to give feedback and weigh in if you think that we're following the rules and doing it right. We've never put our work kind of under the public light in that way. We want to build a lot of public trust and confidence in this process. And so I'll make sure to get you the the link, but would love for people to follow and consider participating in what is a really big kind of public mobilization process as a part of implementing the student investment account. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, maybe uh, just for <laughs> the purposes of time, because I, <laughs> I, I can focus on uh, Measure 98 and what we've <laughs> I seen can pick so up far. a couple. I can pick okay. up a couple. Yeah, <laughs> um, so... <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, Measure 98 received $170 million in the first bienniums, and we have already seen some early progress indicators. So one being um, seeing over 400 full-time staff being hired to uh, do this work, and staff build their capacity through trainings, professional learning, um, through added regional supports to be able to deliver on improving our system for our high school students. Um, the other piece is around ninth grade on track. So um, when we look at the numbers, before Measure 98 was implemented, Oregon's ninth grade on track rates hovered at about 78%. And now two years later, it's at roughly 83.5%. And um, what we're finding is that schools that had um, staff focused on developing these systems and processes for supporting students, those schools have had the most progress when it comes to improving ninth grade success. And then we've also seen expansion in career and technical learning opportunities and um, expansion in terms of access to advanced coursework. Uh, now that Measure 98 is uh, fully funded through um, the Student Success Act, we only anticipate more of that. <laughs> yeah. And um, just seeing districts continue to expand their capacity 
through their summer learning work all the way into the fall and um, having what they've worked on in previous years continue to build on that foundation, that's something that continues, that momentum uh, continues to keep us hopeful about the trajectory of these investments and how they're making an impact on local districts, schools, and students. And then in terms of the other equity initiatives, so there's a little bit of a staggered timeline. Um, So for some of the student equity initiatives like the Black Student Success Plan and the Native American Alaska Native Plan and the Latino Latina Latinx Student Success Plan, um, some of them have advisory groups that are reconvening especially if they're um, an expanded investment. Um, So some of them will reconvene and also update their strategic plans. And for something like the Latino, Latina, Latinx plan, they're convening their advisory group right now (laughs) and working to plan out all of the work to support students pre-K through, I think, through 20, if I remember Mm -hmm. correctly, for that particular plan. And then some of these... Uh, some of the work happening around educator equity and workforce development, um, some of that needs to have um, some specific language adopted to target that funding a little bit more during this legislative session. So everyone's on a slightly different timeline, and we're excited and hopeful about the momentum going into that work and are working with partners to closely track and ensure that the state continues to move forward in fulfilling its promise to uh, meet the goals and, and better support students. Would you add anything else, Scott? Yeah, you just you did a really nice job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think you you said something about what will students experience. One thing like the nutrition is like a big. There's a big investment Absolutely. here for nutrition yep. and yeah. making sure kids get fed. And basically, you're just going to see one an exciting development, be able to uh, have those supports focused based on census data rather than people having to fill out extra forms. But basically, communities that most need more food. There's both an increase in the level of who can access that and also getting food after the bell to students. And so essentially we like know students are at school hungry and you need to be fed to learn. So you'll see that as a real tangible thing. But you really okay. covered the, you know, there, there's a there's an ocean of different supports <laughs> moving at different levels. Right. And, and I would hope folks would feel some confidence. There's a lot of really great work happening mm-hmm. on each of those investments. Um, and we should also applaud our educators and and um, and district leaders. It's hard work, and uh, people appreciate the investment. Mm-hmm. And also, it's, it creates a huge lift. So we should we should take a moment to just recognize that. Absolutely. This is a super exciting week in the early learning world. Um, this Thursday or Friday, so January thirtieth or thirty first. Um, a few of the big grant applications will be released, the request for applications, the RFAs. And so we anticipate that the opportunity to apply for the Early Learning Equity Fund dollars will come out um, by the end of January, that the that Head Start programs can begin applying for all the Head Start funds for early Head Start and preschool-age children and that preschool providers that aren't Head Starts and Head Starts can apply for the Preschool Promise funds. So all of that should kick off by the end of January, and programs will have about two months to apply to finish their applications for those funds. So that is all happening. The special education dollars for zero to five, those will just go to our existing 
regional special education programs based on a formula of how many children are um, eligible for those services in that area. Um, And I think relief nurseries also have an agreement for which programs are opening a new relief nursery or expanding the number of children being served. And they just have to, you know, work on their contracts to make sure they get their additional funds. And the only one that I think is still under discussion, how the funds are going to be distributed is the home visiting program, Healthy Families Oregon. Great, great. Thank you for the update. I want to thank you all for coming on the Early Link podcast today. Scott, Parasandana, I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. <laughs> This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Join us and tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are also available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes at the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.